All right. Well, hey, so so as we get into this, you know, I, I didn't quite realize until last night that, you know, we've been at this for three months. And and I remember whenever I started planning out this series on First Peter and Jeff Thompson and I started talking through it, uh, I think we both thought this might be a six or seven week series and, and uh, we'd all, you know, we, we'd all teach a few lessons and uh, kind of go on down the road. But like most times you get into the word, there seems to be more and more nuggets of gold and wisdom and and it takes a little bit longer to get through. So, you know, we started this at the beginning of the year and uh, and we're going to wrap it up today. I'm going to cover all of chapter five. And, you know, I, I posted on our Facebook group last night that, you know, for some reason this lesson was was challenging to come up with. And normally, um, as I read and, and do some research and really work through it all, a lesson tends to emerge pretty naturally. Uh, and, and that just really wasn't happening. And it, it hit me that this, maybe the reason being that, that it really wasn't coming to me was, you know, I was treating chapter five as a bit of a standalone lesson, uh, when in all reality, this was a letter that Peter wrote to the early church that was always meant to be read in one sitting. And so I went back and did what, what we had really talked about at the very beginning of all of this, uh, which is to just read uh, the letter from, from Peter in its entirety in one sitting, trying to absorb what all is going on. And, and as I read it, I got a bit nostalgic just going back through all the lessons we've gone through together. And for any of you guys who are new on the call today, um, uh, if you have any desire to go back and listen to these, we podcast all this stuff. And if you want to just kind of slowly walk through First Peter, uh, please do. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. But I, I went back to chapter one and and just remember just the, the great stuff about, you know, just us getting to live in this greatest of generations, us getting to live on the other side of the cross, us getting to live in a time that the angels long to look uh, you know, there at the end of verse one, we talked about being holy because God is holy. We, we understood what, or we tried to wrestle with what that really meant. Uh, we, we talked about the fact that we are as with faith in, as people who have faith in Christ there in chapter two, you know, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, uh, work through what that actually meant. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to mute major duck. Um, yeah, I can't do it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, and then you know, then towards the towards the end of chapter two and and in chapter three, we talked about you know submission to authority and all of its different types. So uh, what it meant to be subjected to government authority. The we talked about the slave master relationship. We talked about the husband wife relationship, uh, and how all of that really worked together. You know, as we moved into chapter four, we 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 started talking more and more. Uh, about suffering, you know, there, you know, we, we had this, this great lesson where at the end of three and end of four, I say it's a great lesson. I'm, I'm a bit biased. I taught it. Uh, but you know, we did that deal where I compared Jesus to Baker Mayfield and, and, and that's something that I will never forget. So, uh, all that being said, the reason I, I kind of say that is when I went back and read everything, uh, the, the cumulative impact of all those lessons we've gone through and all the wisdom that's been shared in this, in this letter really hit me. And so it meant this it meant for me that this first word that's used at the beginning of chapter 5 became much more important. Uh chapter 5 starts with the word so. And and for me whenever I saw so it, it's really saying honestly it's saying look you've just read this entire letter. You you've you've taken all this understanding that that we have that that that's been provided all this wisdom that's been provided in this letter. It's gotten it's gotten all of it. We've we've dived into all these different topics. So, right? So, so it's it's been like a now what type moment as Peter concludes this letter. And so what we're going to do today is is we're going to try to get on the other side of that so. You know, what's this final guidance that Peter is giving us that he really wants to make sure that the early church understood and then now that we can apply. But what's this final guidance that he's trying to to make sure he conveys to the early church? And as we walk through this, uh, we're going to walk through it really talking uh, with a few high-level topics. So we're going to go to uh, really what it means to lead, what it means to follow, 
Uh, and then we're going to look at uh, a bit of some, some guidance that Peter gives for all of us, uh, regardless of which position that we find ourselves in, uh, as he really wraps up uh, the, the, the letter. So let me grab one piece of paper real quick. Somehow I put my notes underneath my computer. Um, so let me read, and I'm, I'm going to go slowly through this, this text. And if you can, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 and just keep your Bibles out. Uh, we're we're going to just work really verse by verse through this text today. Uh, this text is actually pretty simple. Uh, it doesn't require a whole lot of explanation, but we're going to try to get everything out of this text. So I'm going to start with verse 1 where it says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What Peter's really talking about here, what he's saying is he's trying to express the credibility that he has uh, to make sure he is giving this message. Uh, he's saying, I am one of you, right? I am a fellow elder. Uh, I, I'm a leader in the church. I mean, we all know what task uh, Jesus gave Peter to go do in the early church. He's a leader in the early church. He was there as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's got credibility to make sure that the message that he has just provided throughout this letter ought to be followed. He has that credibility. That being said, he also says this. He goes, I'm a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Uh, whenever I read that, what, what really what really kind of hit me about that is Peter's not saying, look, I have all this authority, so listen to me. He's saying, I'm one of you, and I'm also a sinner, right? I, I am someone who needed to be redeemed. I, I am someone who, who needed to be restored, uh, who, who needed to to be forgiven by Christ. He gets to be our partaker uh, in the glory, a partaker in the grace that comes through Christ. So, so all this to be said, Peter's just trying to make sure that as he gives his final guidance, he's saying, I'm one of you uh, and I'm getting to experience this right alongside of you, but I've got enough credibility to make sure you're going to listen to what I've said and what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, verse 2 starts out with this. He started, so verse 2 really starts where Peter's going to say, okay, I'm going to give some instruction now to the people among you who are being called to lead, right? So, so uh, in, in the early church, a lot of the people who have been called to lead at that point in time, the elders would have naturally been older. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's an only age type thing, but, but in most places, uh, the most wise are people who've had more years under their belt. Uh, and so he's going to be talking to these people right now and giving them some instructions on how to lead. And, and when I think about this class and I think about the mission of this class, you know, we are trying to gain wisdom from God's word to develop spiritual fathers within our church and within our community. So, so I, I think for you guys, as seriously as you all take this study and as seriously as you all take your walk with Christ, this is a really important message for each of you. Right, you're all being called to lead in different regards, uh, and so we're we're trying to make sure we understand what Peter is telling us as to how to lead in these next couple of verses. So the first thing he says is this: he says, "Shepherd the flock of God that is among you." Shepherd the flock of God, and and I thought that was a fitting way for Peter to say it, and it made me think uh, of. The fact that Peter's really calling on the early church to just follow in the example of what he's been called to do. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you know, go ahead and turn back to John chapter 21. And I want to read the story just real fast about how Peter got into this situation that he's in, where he's really been asked to go and shepherd the flock. Uh, give everyone just a second to turn there. John chapter 21, and we're going to start on verse 15. Uh, this is this is a beautiful story, uh, and it takes place as you're kind of flipping to your Bibles. It takes place after uh, after Jesus was um, after he had already been resurrected, after he had met them in Galilee, uh, as he's really sitting there by the sea, having this conversation with some of the disciples, and so. So there in verse 15, you see this conversation occur between Jesus and Peter. And remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times, right? He had denied him. 
Uh, and, and I was trying to explain to my, my kids last night the difference between Peter and Judas. You know, both Peter and Judas during that time, this, especially given this Holy Week storyline, both of them betrayed Christ. The difference is Peter repented, right? He absolutely he confessed what he did, and he repented. And we see Christ forgive him in a very beautiful way and then task him with something to go and be a leader in the early church. So verse 15, I'm going to read 15 through uh, 19 here in this text. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, son, son of John do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I want you to see uh, in this text that Peter himself had confessed, he had been forgiven, uh, he, had been, he had made sure that, that Christ knew that he loved him, and Jesus knew that Peter loved him, but he tells them, feed my sheep, follow me. He tells Peter pr- pretty clearly there, this is not going to end in ease and comfort. You're going to die following me. Peter has to have that understanding. And so as he's addressing this letter to these leaders, Peter has all the credibility in the world. He has been there with Christ. He has been forgiven. He has been told by Christ himself to feed the sheep. And now Peter's conveying a very similar guidance there, saying, Just as I've been told to take care of the flock, I'm telling you, elders of the church, leaders at wherever God has sent you, make sure you are shepherding the flock of God that is among you. And then he provides a little bit more specific information about how to do that. He says, make make sure you're exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And I really like this. I, you know, reading those words, exercising oversight, I underlined, and to exercise oversight, you really need to know what you're doing. Right? I don't know if anyone's ever uh, tried to supervise something or provide instruction on something whenever you don't know what to do. But it's very clear to me whenever I'm following the orders of someone who has no idea what they're doing, uh, it's very different than following the orders of someone who knows what they're doing. For us to exercise oversight, for us as leaders in the church to exercise oversight, we need to know what we're doing. We need to know God's word. We need to make sure we're not leading sheep astray. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys listened to Terry's lesson from last Wednesday. He talked a lot about the dangers of, of people being led astray from within the church. Right? I remember he said, you know, it's you know, athe- atheism has never been the primary concern. Uh, the primary concern has been people within the church building new rules or worshiping in, a diff- in, in different ways or, or adding things on to our religion, right? It'd be very easy to lead astray if we don't understand what we're talking about. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I love what you guys do each week is you gather together to make sure you spend time in God's Word. Uh, And I know a lot of you guys are involved in multiple Bible studies. Uh, You're reading God's Word on your own on a daily basis. You're praying. You're doing all the things you ought to do to make sure that as you exercise oversight, you're doing it in a way that would be honoring to God in alignment with His commands and not in whatever way we deem is acceptable. So we have to make sure we do that. We always need to be grounded in the Word, faithful to the Word. And then he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Right? Not under compulsion. Uh, I know I used to have a boss back whenever I li- when I lived in Houston. And 
this guy acted like he was being drugged to work every single day and just beaten to death all day long. I mean, he was he was the most unmotivating boss I've ever had in my life. Uh, he, he would complain constantly about how many hours he had to work. He would complain constantly about management above him, not getting it. Uh, he would just argue about the systems we had in place. Uh, I, I mean, and this was in a pretty difficult time in the organization. Uh, and I, it was so hard to get motivated to go charge the hill with that guy. Uh, and and it, you could tell he didn't want to be there. Uh, he had no desire to really be doing his job at the best of his ability. Uh, and, it, and I really struggled working underneath him at times. And, and so this is saying, you know, you're leading, you're doing these things, you're exercising oversight, not under compulsion, right? We do this with joy. We lead with joy. As we're being called to go serve in the church, to be leaders in the church, we do it willingly and with joy, and I have to remind myself of that every now and then, because as you become a leader, and many of you guys know this from the business world, right? As you become a leader, people will pay more and more and more attention to everything you do. Uh, so, so if you know, great example. I know whenever I used to get in the elevator, uh, I used to ride, I used to work up on the executive floor at my company in Melbourne. And so when I'd get in the elevator, uh, every now and then the CEO would be in the elevator with me. And, and I would watch just how careful he was to make sure that he always had a pleasant smile on his face, that he never looked stressed, that he wasn't rubbing his forehead, that he wasn't sighing. You know, he did everything to make sure that whoever was in that elevator with him knew that he was calm, he was collected, he was in charge, everything was okay, even when the sky was falling all around us. And so as you guys are leaders, you have to know that people will look to you more and more closely uh, to make sure that you're leading well and will really overanalyze different things you do. Uh, as I walk down the hall, every now and then I'll have my team tell me, hey, that was a loud sigh or, or something like that. And really, that's my clue to realize that I'm allowing, I'm allowing things to come out. And as a leader, I need to be more careful about doing that. Uh, but also, we need to have... Yep. Since I'm not a leader, Blake, can I cry? Yeah, it's okay. We'll get to the followers in just a second, Derek. But you're shortchanging yourself. We'll get to we'll get to humility in a minute. Uh, but but you know, I, I want you guys to remember that um, you, you you know this from your kids. If you've ever had kids, uh, whatever mood you're in will be picked up by your kids very very quickly. Uh, we need to know that 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 whenever you go to church on Sunday mornings, we do that happily. Like your kids will pick up on it. I know mine have before. Uh, if I'm ever not thrilled to go to church on a Sunday morning, they'll pick up on that really fast, and then it'll come up in a couple of weeks whenever they feel like they're too tired to go to church or to go and serve in any capacity we're asking them to do. We need to make sure everything we're doing is not under compulsion, uh, but is willingly as God would have us do this. Uh, we have some great examples right here in our class, uh, people who just joyfully serve the Lord. And I love that I've gotten to know you guys better, and I get to see that come out time and time again. Uh, but that's something we need to make sure we're doing very well as leaders. And then it says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. To be a leader means you're going to have influence, right? You're going to have influence. And you don't want to lord that influence over others. Uh, the greatest leadership we find in the Bible time and time again is, is servant-based leadership. Uh, just because you have the power doesn't mean you need to use it in a way that is domineering over other people. Uh, I have to be very careful here at the church that I never ever say, we're going to go do this because Marty Grubbs wants to do it, or we're going to go do this because Terry wants to do it. Uh, I have to be very careful not to say that, as tempting as it is at times, because I could get stuff done a lot faster if I use Marty's name all over the place. Uh, but you've got to be careful not to use that authority that you have sometimes in, in domineering ways. Uh, we have to be very, very cautious uh, of how to lead. It says, overall, be examples to the flock. Show what joyful, servant-based leadership that is not domineering looks like. And as God puts you into positions of leadership and you're faithful with that leadership, your example will come through and people will follow your example. Uh, 
You guys can all think to yourself right now about some leaders that you have followed in life, whether it be teachers or coaches or bosses or parents, right? A lot of the way you probably lead right now has been shaped by the good leaders you've seen in your life. And hopefully we've all been been around bad leaders that we decide not to follow as well. Uh, but you've all had some good leaders in your life that, that really do serve as an example. We're being called to make sure we're always being good examples. That also means being careful not to jeopardize our witness, not to jeopardize the post that God has given us. So you go back through all the lessons that we've gone through in this text today. Uh, many, you, you can't be a good example if you're not faithful to all the commands that we've gone through up until this point. Now, I think it's interesting that this, that this text comes at the very end here. Right? It's like, I need you to understand how you have to do all this, all the different things you're called to do as a follower of Christ. Now that you know that, now that you're going to keep that in your head, now that you're going to exercise this, here is how you lead. Any questions on that, though, before we, we move on to the next point? All right. Verse 4 says this. It's a bit of a uh, um, a connector between leadership and then what it means to follow a leader. And it says this, talking about uh, the leaders, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right? When the chief shepherd appears. At the end of the day, if we're leaders here, we're still following the chief shepherd. If you've been given a flock to shepherd in any capacity, we are all following a chief shepherd. We are all following Christ. Uh, and so the, the lessons getting ready to come to help us understand how to be a follower applies to all of us. It, it applies to the president of the United States, right? We are all following Christ. But locally, within, within the church, within the early church, there are going to be some people called to lead and some people who need to follow. Uh, especially if you think about who this letter is being written to, you're going to have a lot of people uh, who may not have grown up you know, practicing, practicing any religion. You know, they, they may not have grown up. Uh, you know, this letter is being written to Jew, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, so you're going to have a lot of different people reading this letter. A lot of adults who are going to be coming to faith in Christ who have very little spiritual maturity, right? Who are going to need to know how to properly follow. So let me keep reading here on verse 5. We're going to get guidance on what it means to be a good follower. It says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, the first thing there, you see that those words, be subject, right? And so we've talked about being subject to a number of things as we've gone through First Peter. We've talked about slaves being subject to masters, wives being subject to husbands, being subject to, the, to, to our ruling authorities. We've talked about this a whole lot. This shouldn't be a foreign concept. Uh, but then it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And the best way I think we can all think about that is think about going to prepare a massive meal, going to prepare a huge Thanksgiving dinner, uh, and that you're going to be in the kitchen all day long, and that you need to put an apron on to make sure you're clothing yourself in a way that's ready to go prepare this meal. You're doing something very intentional. You're putting on humility as a tool to make sure you're following in the way that we're called to follow. Whenever I, I read this, I just happened to be reading as well uh, during my own just daily um, Bible study. I was reading in Luke 14. And Luke 14, if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke 14, um, it is Matthew, Mark, Luke. I'm going to turn my Bible there too. I did not have that marked. Uh, if, you, if you turn to Luke 14, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. We're going to be in Luke 14. Uh, starting on verse 7. And this is a parable of the wedding feast. And I thought this was a great, just probably the best way, especially given Jesus taught it, right, uh, to explain 
what type of humility we're called, uh, we're called to to follow Christ and to follow those in the church who've been called to lead. And, and I, I want to be careful as we talk about this type of humility because I think it can be very easy to slip into faux humility, right, to, to false humility. Uh, you hear a lot of times people will say, hey, you did a good job on that, and then, and then we all try to, to take away any credit to, to say we're, we weren't good, you know, to, to, to try to um, uh, take away whatever compliment we possibly can. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, and that's okay, but but what is difficult at times, and I think what's not right at times, is to really claim something uh, self in a self-deprecating way that just isn't true. And I'll say, you guys have called me out on this in this class a few times. Uh, I, I've had a number of you guys come up to me and, and talk about the teaching, talk about the lessons, uh, talk about things you're getting out of it, talk about things we need to be doing, uh, and, and I have a really hard time hearing Compliments. I have a really hard time um, hearing those things at times, and, and I think I think every now and then I've probably I've probably taken some of the taken away some of the authority that God's given me to teach this class uh, because I'm not as confident in, in in my giftings. And you guys have called me out on that, and I appreciate that. We should never practice faux humility, right? We we, we ought to make sure we're always very truthful and understanding. We shouldn't think less of ourselves. As C.S. Lewis says, we shouldn't think less of ourselves. You should just think about yourselves less, right? Uh, as you really understand what humility means in Christ, it means that, that we don't think that our skills are less. We don't think that we're, we're worse people. Uh, but over time, our minds become more and more transformed to think less about what we're trying to do and to think about the needs and the cares and the, the glory of others as opposed to ourselves. So I want you to keep that in mind as we read through this parable of the wedding feast. So again, it's Luke chapter 14, starting on verse 7. Jesus says this, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come Come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And remember these words in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will will be exalted for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled for he who humbles himself will be exalted and you see that right there uh coming into the next verse whenever we we switch back to first peter Uh, this is an odd thing to think about though especially in our world today and it would have been odd in the early church as well that you would voluntarily go and place yourself at the seat of lowest honor right you would voluntarily go and do that and, and then to trust that the person, the host of the party, would exalt you in whatever way is deemed appropriate, right? That, that's, that's just an odd, odd concept uh, for us to grasp at times. Uh, but it's what we're called to do, and we're called to do it in a way that is actually the best for us. Uh, I, I struggle with this a whole lot. Uh, I, I struggle with humility, and that's not just me being faux humble either. I, I struggle with humility. Uh, if there's anything that's going to get me, it's going to be pride. Uh, it's going to be me wanting to be the smartest guy in the room, me wanting to make sure that I'm taking control of a meeting, me trying to do those things. That's what's going to bring me down. And um, th- this has been a struggle for me. And and I remember whenever I was in my job in Australia, I had a very different type of job. It was the first job in a long time where I was being – my job was to make somebody else look better. And so I was the chief of staff to the CFO of a pretty large company. 
And so my job was to make sure that guy looked good on a daily basis, right? I mean, he, he needed to have his reports look good. His presentations needed to be ready. His speeches needed to be proper. He needed to be ready for investor calls. He needed to be ready to go talk to banks. His organization needed to run well. He needed to always be credible with the board, with the, with the risk and audit committee. Uh, my job was to make him look better on a daily basis. And I've been used to having a regular job, which is where I had goals and I had objectives and I had a team I got to manage. And if my team met their goals and objectives, everything went well. I got a bonus. You know, you know, I was applauded by management. You know, all these things, you know, like a normal corporate environment. And I had to transition my thinking as to how, how I could go from, from a type of job that I was very used to to go into a job where I'm going to have to really swallow my pride on a minute-by-minute basis and suck it all up and make this guy look good. And I'll say it took me about three or four months to figure that out, uh, to figure out that the best thing I could do for him and for the company and for everything was to know that it did not matter who got the credit for the good work. It didn't matter who got the credit for the good work. And and honestly, if I was getting the credit for the good work, it meant someone in the organization failed. If I was getting the credit because we, we wrote a great bond issuance program, it meant our treasury department had failed. If I was getting the credit for a great investor relations presentation, it meant that our IR team had failed. I had to eventually be fine knowing that I was going to participate in 5, 10, 15, 20% of everything that got done. I was there to counsel, to, to provide encouragement, to provide advice, to get things going, to make sure things got done. But at the end of the day, I wasn't going to get any credit for it whatsoever. And I had to accept that. And I think we're called to do a very similar thing here in the church, right? There's going to be all kinds of ways where where if we want it to go and to boast and to try to take the glory for ourselves, what we would be doing is is you know, intentionally or unintentionally, we would be taking the glory away from the one we're meant to be glorifying, right? Just like I was meant to make my boss look good, I was meant to bring him glory was my job. We as Christians are meant to be glorifying the chief shepherd, the one we are all following. We're trying to get all the glory to Christ. That's what we're called to do. And for good reasons, because it's good for us. Uh, But it can be easy to fall into our natural mindset to make sure that people know we did the work, we did a good job, that we ought to get some credit for it. Uh, right now here at the church, uh, we're, we're participating in a ministry effort to feed 400 you know, really desperately in need families here in our city. And I'm, I'm very, I say this not trying to brag or boast, but I want you to, to know how your church tries to epitomize this idea, right? Uh, we're, we're doing a pretty big ministry effort here with funds that God has provided us, with volunteers that God has given us. Uh, and our church has been very intentional that we're not going to provide press releases, we're not going to do video interviews, we're not going to do any type of that work because we don't want to have our church being glorified in any way. Uh, we want the credit to go to God. We want to just be focused on doing the work. And if you get back to this parable of the wedding banquet, that is us intentionally going and sitting at the furthest seat from the table, the furthest seat of honor, trusting that the host will come one day and will tell to us, friend, come forward and exalt us because of the humility, because we've been trying to glorify him. We've got to be very, very careful about that um, as we properly follow. If you move into verse 6, it says this. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And I see verse 6 being a bit of a transition in this lesson, a bit of a transition in, in the letter. Uh, I kind of feel like you know Peter starts out by taking credibility, then he goes to what it means to lead, then what it means to follow, and then he's kind of coming back, and I think he's addressing everybody really with this part of the letter. And he's saying, all of you, right, you're all following the chief shepherd. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so at the proper time he may exalt you. And and when I read that, I just what what I really was struck with me is that we're not humbling ourselves only under the leadership that the earthly leadership that has been given us. We're not humbling ourselves just under each other, but we're hum- humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And last week we talked, uh, as we were really digging into suffering and pain, uh, we read from Job 38, and we read God's really response to Job uh, as Job had challenged God and had really kind of you know questioned what he really didn't understand. He had spoken in a way he didn't understand, and it almost came across as a challenge to God, but God loved Job, and, and, he, and he spoke back to him. And we saw that beautiful passage from God where he was really helping Job try to understand that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He is so much mightier and more powerful and more awesome than we could possibly imagine. And he was letting Job understand that. And so when I, when I think about being humbled under the mighty hand of God, I think the best example in the Bible that I could really think about was Job himself because he had this direct interaction with the mighty hand of God, and he shows us what it means to be humbled. Uh, if you go to Job chapter 42, and you don't have to flip there in your Bibles. I'll read this passage. But Job chapter 42 uh, talks about Job's answer back to God. Uh, his confession, his his time of repentance. When when Job has been utterly humbled, this is how he responds. Job answers the Lord and says this, 40, 42 verse 1 and 2 here. says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was a question God had asked Job. Job says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. That was something God said to Job in in chapter 38. And Job responds, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had said, I had heard of you, but now I have had this direct encounter with you. And my response is utter humility. I will, I've heard you. I'm listening to you. I am following you. And I want you to think about all this. Peter is an eyewitness to the works of Christ. He is an absolute eyewitness to the works of Christ. He has gotten to experience the mighty hand of God himself. And he's providing this instruction saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then it says something interesting in verse 7. It says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you, which I thought almost seemed out of place in this context. It says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I thought to myself, you know, it's difficult to cast your anxieties on something whenever you've never relinquished control, right? And and so I want you to think back to that parable of the wedding banquet, uh, where where you go and you sit at the seat furthest from, from, from honor, right? When you go and you sit at that seat that is furthest from honor, you're giving up any control that you have to glorify yourself, to honor yourself in any way. You are putting 100% of the control in the hands of the host of that wedding banquet to make sure that you will be honored, right? If you go and you sit at the front seat of that wedding banquet, The entire time, if you really think about that, you're going to be looking around to see if anyone's going to come in that has higher honor than you that may embarrass you in front of everyone when you have to move down, right? But if you sit at the end, all, all control rests upon the host. And for us, it rests upon the good shepherd. It rests upon a God who we can trust because we know he cares for us and we know that he loves us. We we talked about that a whole lot last week. Right? So if you relinquish all of that control, it is at that point that you can cast your anxieties upon him. But I find it very difficult to cast my anxieties upon God when I'm trying to control everything in my life myself. But as you keep being more and more obedient and keep putting more and more of your faith in Christ, you keep moving further and further down that table to where you're putting more and more of your trust in the great host who cares for you. 
So I want you to always remember that. If you're finding it difficult to cast your anxieties to God, I want you to consider, are you praying, right? Are, are you praying in a way that shows that you're putting your trust in him? Are you living your life in a way that you're putting your trust in him? This is an incredible gift that God has given us, that he says, pray to me and cast your anxieties upon me. I will take them from you, right? But you can't do it if you're trying to control every situation yourself, which is what we definitely want to do, especially as Americans in this culture, we really do try to control things. So humble yourself, trust God to exalt you and honor you. And as you humble yourself, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And then he gives us this warning. Verse eight, he says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if you go, if, I mean, the, the first instance I recall of this in the Bible is there in Genesis chapter 4, whenever God's having that discussion with Cain, uh, as Cain is angry and, and approaching sin, and, and God's saying, you know, sin is crouching at your door, right? It is crouching at your door. It wants to devour you, right? So what? Be watchful, right? Uh, be sober-minded. Be in control of your thoughts. Uh, control your thoughts in the ways of God. Be careful what you let into your mind. Uh, make sure we're always being controlled. And it says resist him. Uh, be firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. And if you think about that, being firm in your faith means that you cannot have a fake faith. Right? It must be real. Uh, you, to be firm in anything, it has to be planted. It has to be be strong. It, it has to be something that can withstand pressures, right? You know, uh, a firm your house being built on a firm foundation means that when the Oklahoma winds blow on a daily basis, your house doesn't fall down. It's got to be a strong foundation. Just like that, our faith has to be firm. It has to be real, which is one reason it's so important that we start in the Word. Uh, but I, I think all of this coming together is really important. He says, you know, the devil prowls around you like a like a, a lion crouching ready to devour you. You must be firm in your faith. You know, we 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 started out this entire series on 1 Peter uh really talking about the fact that these guys were undergoing persecution. Uh, now, it wasn't necessarily physical persecution at this point in time, but they're going through a whole lot of so social and economic persecution. Uh, for that persecution, they needed to be firm in their faith. They needed to be sober-minded. They needed to be watchful. Uh, but they're getting ready to head into a time that is going to be much, much worse. Right? There are going to be literal lions, lions crouching, ready to devour them. Right? I mean, you really think about this. The thousands upon thousands uh, of Christians who would be killed in the Colosseums by lions right, for sport. Uh, that's going to be coming under the time of Nero, which is not too far off from this letter. Uh, and, and so being firm in your faith is absolutely critical. And that was something that, that, that people just didn't understand about Christians. They couldn't believe that they would sit there in the face of death and, sit and, and not condemn Jesus Christ and not condemn their faith. They would never turn away. Uh, which is absolutely incredible about the history of our faith that our people endured all of that. And we talked last week about suffering in this world and that how it exists. And, and, and we, we talked a lot about how we may not always understand the why behind suffering, but we can always know this, that God is with us, that he cares about us, and we're not doing this alone. And, and if you read the next verse, part of that proves it. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, right? Not only are you not alone in it in terms of, not alone in terms of, of God being with you, but God also sends your brothers and your sisters in Christ to share in the burdens with you, right? We are here to support each other, to encourage each other, to lift each other up, you know, I, I think about people, men in this class right now who are struggling with a lot. I mean, Ken just lost his wife. Scott just lost his mother. 
we have a number number of people in here who have been sick. We have people in here who have either lost their jobs, uh, lost part of their family, or or their jobs have reduced their pay. You know, we have a lot of men who are going through a whole lot. Part of what we get to do together is make sure that we're supporting each other. Uh, there's other people sharing the pains that you're going through. Uh, if you look here at our church, one of the greatest ministries I think we have is our care series ministry. And for any of you guys who have been through one of those before, uh, it's just incredible. And it will prove to you that there are other people, other Christians, other people who follow God, who are going through the same things that you are going through. You're never alone, no matter what you have. And if you ever feel alone, resist the urge to self-isolate and dwell upon it. Uh, Resist that urge to only be by yourself. That's what we naturally want to do, but God brings us together for this reason. There's hope in knowing that there's other people sharing in these pains and these trials and these suffering. And these Christians have got to know that they're not alone to face the persecution they're facing right now, but also to face the persecution they're about to face uh, in the days to come. And then it says this in verse 10. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So it's no, all throughout this letter, we've been talking about the fact that there will be suffering. But we live in the greatest of times where we are on the other side of the cross. There is an incredible, incredible inheritance that we have uh, that, is, that has been paid for, right? Uh, and he, he's telling us, he says, after you have suffered a little while, keep all of this in perspective. Know this great privilege that we have to be followers of Christ right now. After you suffer for a little while, remember that Christ himself, right, Christ himself is going to restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Right? This idea of restoration that's being portrayed here in this passage, uh, this idea of restore, it's almost like taking a ship that's been out in the ocean. And this ship has either been beaten by a storm or it's been beaten up by a battle with another ship. This ship is, is absolutely broken. Right, It has gone through the storm and as it docks in the peaceful waters it is restored right it is built back to strength and 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 i love this passage because it tells us that doesn't happen by our power right we do not have the ability to restore ourselves you know you don't have the ability to to do everything to restore me we don't have that power but it will be done by christ himself You're going to be out in waters where you are broken by the waves or you have to go into battle, but Christ himself will restore you. And verse 11 says this, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the dominion. To him be this overruling power, this this mighty, incredible, awesome power which is guaranteed to bring you through to the inheritance which has been promised to you, right? We don't worship a God who died and nothing else happened after that, right? We worship a God who went and defeated death, right? We worship the God we talked about who these incredible, incredible, glorious things have all occurred, right? We worship a mighty, powerful God who does have the power to make sure all the promises we've talked about through this time that we've been studying First Peter will come true, right? That's one of the things we talked about over and over again as we studied the Old Testament last year. We worship a God who keeps his promises, and as he keep them, he has the power to deliver upon them, right? That is something we all have to rest upon, especially knowing what's going to occur in the days to come. None of us know what trials we will face, but we do know we will face trials. None of us know how we're going to get through it, but we do know we're not alone, right? All of us must realize we don't have the strength to handle this ourselves, but God does, and he promises that to us. So I want you to, as we just dwell upon this First Peter letter, I want us to remember that we've been taught a lot, but he's making sure we know 
There's going to be times that you need to lead. There's going to be times that you need to shepherd the flock. You've been given the authority, the, 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 the power to go and to do that, right? But do it in his ways. There's going to be times you need to follow. Do it with humility in the ways he's told us, right? We, we need to make sure we, we really soak in this letter from First Peter because I, I'll say I, I, I wanted to study First Peter because I thought it was going to be important in the days to come as we go through a presidential election. But knowing what God has brought us through right now, I think it's even more important that we, we take these lessons to heart right, and know that none of us are alone as we go through it. I want to end today uh, in this, as we study First Peter. I wanted to end this book in the same way we ended Ruth. And this is what you guys get for having a guy teaching this class who happens to also like poetry. Uh, but whenever I first started reading First Peter, uh, I read chapter 5, and I thought to myself how beautiful it was that we're going to get to end on a lesson where we're taught how to lead in our church, how to be good spiritual leaders and followers, but especially for you guys, how to lead. And so a couple months ago, I asked Scott Sambar to write a poem based on chapter 5 in First Peter. And I want to read this poem and allow this poem to be our prayer today uh, as we um, wrap up. So let me read this to you. It says, Humble men of God are we, head down bowed on bended knee. At the throne of Christ who lives, servanthood to him we give. Jesus, our blood, our ransom paid, paschal lamb of God was made. Lives surrendered to our Lord, we do strive with plow and sword. Think on this as life you live, Jesus died, his life did give. What he did that must we do, sheep and shepherds, sheepdogs too. All of us, our hearts and souls, sing the song of Jesus bold. Elders, leaders, plant the seed, lights of Christ in word and deed. Hardest job they'll ever love, preach to all of God above. Feed the flock with bread of life, courage in this world of strife. Yet they lead not from above, from below they lead with love. Servants to all they should be, lambs should come glad willingly. All his saints are shepherds too. Lead, protect, we serve Christ true. Men of strength, yet strength through Christ. Spirit's power gives humble might. Gentle hands of loving care. Love's the mantle we should wear. Rod we must employ at times. Tempered, measured, Christ in mind. Calloused hands our bucklers clench. Satan's fiery darts to quench. Not just for ourselves to shield. Family, friends, in him we're sealed. Strong, courageous, heaven-sent, sober, wakeful, vigilant. Jesus' blood spilt gave us life. We're called to pay our price. Fear not, men, satanic foes. With God's might, deal hammer blows. Ancient days till kingdom come. Christ returns, our God has won. Gentlemen, can't wait to see you guys next week. Bill Search is going to be teaching us for about the next three or four weeks. And, uh, and then I'm going to start another series. I'll probably rope Jeff into it as well, uh, assuming the banking, uh, the banking industry has not completely collapsed uh, under all of this. And uh, we'll be picking a book to, uh, to get kicked up in. But uh, join us again, same time next week, same link. And uh, Bill Search will be leading us. Thank you, guys. My favorite.